is Ukraine an existential problem for Russia? Is Russia afraid about its own existence if it loses Ukraine? Can we call the current conflict a genocidal war? And what are its deep roots? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is heading international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So there is a big question about the word genocide. And uh, the question is basically, the discussion is quite often is in the way that Ukrainians are claiming that this war is a genocidal war, that Russia's intent is to destroy the Ukrainian nation, while uh, many Western observers, international observers are saying that, look, you cannot say in this way, because in order to prove uh, this as a crime of genocide, you should uh, prove the intention, the genocidal intention. What are your, uh, Tanya, what are, what are your feeling? what are your vision of this? Well, the question is quite complex. And uh, yes, indeed, we are frequently asked by our Western observers, first and journalists, about what would this do, do we think about this, the, more, uh, the world genocide. Uh, on one hand, what we see that uh, this is not a pure, this classical war, an army against an army. It's also about civilians and it's mostly about Ukrainian identity as it is. So it's about language. It's about Ukrainian identity. It's about Ukrainian people. It's about the the will of Russia, which is quite explicit, to erase everything which is Ukrainian. When we look at what Russian propaganda is stating every day on TV, for example, even now, they try to erase a every notion of what Ukraine is. So they just claim this is a part of Russia. They just simply don't exist. And then simply when we see Russian army advancing, be it in Kiev, regional, in Chernihiv or elsewhere, they don't consider Ukrainians being uh, equal, I would say in a way equal living beings. Then the huge... Uh, and very specific discussion about the word genocide is here. Uh, I would say that uh, this discussion can last for for a certain moment. But what is clear, if it is not even not a genocide, we are facing crimes against humanity, and the practical response um, when we face such crimes would be equal. So we, we are to resist and we are to protect Ukrainian people from what Russian people and Russian government for sure is trying to do with Ukrainians. Yeah, we, we should first ask a question, what are the goals of this war? And uh, obviously that the goals uh, which are, which were set up by Putin initially, that is denazification of Ukraine, demilitarization of Ukraine, we put it in, in, in quotation marks, of course, I mean, these goals are are not not trustable, not reliable, because it is clear for us Ukrainians and for increasing number of people abroad that the real goal is to uh, eliminate the the state which is called Ukraine, efface it, wipe uh, wipe it off the face of the uh, of the face of the earth, to make it non-existent. Because they are saying that Ukraine is an artificial nation, that Ukrainian language is an artificial language. And that basically Ukrainians are spoiled Russians. That's the basic narrative about it. That there are no Ukrainians, there are only Russians which were spoiled by some influences uh, from Austrians, from Poles, from Jews, from Germans, and then by from, uh, from Americans. So the real goal, and, and this is, I mean, this is something that um, 
is is really on the surface and uh, lots of people right now in Ukraine in, including your your organization Ukraine Crisis Media Center in our organization Internews Ukraine and Ukraine World um, and there are some other organizations like Detector Media or uh, Institute for Mass Information we are now collecting evidence that shows that the, there was a, a huge uh, pattern of propaganda of discourse which was actually preparing this war and preparing by saying that Ukrainians do not exist. And this was the major goal of the propaganda. I was I was saying for years, um, me personally, on every, every particular event about the so-called disinformation, that the goal of the Russian propaganda is not to deceive, is not really to spread fake news. This is an instrument. The real goal of the Russian propaganda was and is to prove that their enemy does not exist or does not have a right to exist. So either Ukraine, there were two major narratives. Either Ukraine is not existing state, never existed, it, it, it's, it is a fake, it itself is a fake, is an invention, or if it exists, the, 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 the mode of Ukrainians to exist is a morally horrible and evil mode of existence. Therefore, they were saying, okay, if... Ukrainians do not exist, but if they exist, they are Nazis, they are murderers, they are mass crimes, etc., uh, etc. Et so. But there, uh, this is a very interesting point you are making. Yes, um, Russian, Russian, uh, Russian government, but not only. If you look on what Russian um, uh, alternative are talking about, they have the trend to overlook Ukraine. In everything they say, for example, today, they present even this war, if you look at, uh, at what Russian publics are discussing, they are discussing the, their fights with, I don't know, Poles, uh, Afro-Americans, I don't know whom else, uh, uh, Westerners, uh, near Bakhmut. They just overlook Ukrainians being present there. They invent foreigners. They were presenting this war from the very beginning as a war with NATO. If we come back to the couple of months before the war started, I will. I mean, this full-scale invasion. They were talking. They were provoking NATO. They were saying, stated, uh, referring their statements against NATO, against Western world as it is. And today, when they are losing several battles in the east, they present that they are losing, not facing Ukraine, but facing NATO, uh, facing this collective West, this expression they use uh, quite commonly to to design uh, Europe and United States. So they overlook, and this is significant not only for Russian propaganda, but also for, um, for some uh, Russians present in Europe, some Russians being anti-Putin, uh, what we call opposition, this is not a real opposition because they are not inside the country no more at least, but they present themselves as opposition and when I listen to what they are talking about when they, they, they might talk for one hour and a half about the about the current war between Russia and Ukraine and they barely don't mention Ukraine and Ukrainians as they are, they are mentioning uh, uh, European countries they are mentioning uh, Russia, they are mentioning uh, I don't know, uh, NATO weapons, whatever, they're not mentioned even the word of Ukraine because it, it, it hurts for them to understand that this small country, relatively small country, I mean in comparison with Russia in terms of territory and in terms of population, is facing this aggression and this is something inadmissible for them to say, that, look, they are still capable to resist. It means that they do exist, these Ukrainians. And another mechanism which is uh, which was always here in place for many centuries, and we'll discuss it, is assimilation. Russians and Ukrainians are close close people. So in a way, physically, you would not see a lot of differences between Russians and between Ukrainians. So we live in the same climate, in more or less uh, same geography. If we take into consideration this European part of Russia, at least. So we are, we look alike. So you cannot distinguish between a Russian and a Ukrainian, right? So this is... We actually, we actually can. Ukrainians yeah. can distinguish and can distinguish the accent. You can clearly distinguish a Russian language spoken in Donbass. No, I'm, I'm not talking about language. I'm talking about physical 
physical appearance. I'm talking about 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 physical about, about the body. So this is not not there are some differences. Let let's not be so. But but this is quite close, people. So, and this is quite easy for for what we were discussing with you when we were talking talking about empires. This mechanism of assimilation of of neighbors. So for Russians, it's quite easy. They just ban. Ukrainian language, as they did, for example, with Belarusia. In Belarusia, nobody, almost nobody speaks uh, Belarusian. People look alike, so they are co- calling all that slaves, so Slavonic nations, and then they are. It means that they all are Russians, and though it's quite easy to erase everything which is different. Exactly, uh, and um, <clears throat> if we look at this in kind of a tradition. I would say this is a long, long history of this denial of existence. We will actually understand how the history is important, and therefore history is extremely important in the in in the way how it it is all being legitimized. Therefore, there was so big reaction. You remember when Putin published this quasi historical article on on his website on the website of the Kremlin, the Kremlin rule about Ukrainians and Russians. Why? Because historical uh, interpretation, the interpretation of the past is really at, uh, in the in the kind of a basis of this genocidal rhetorics. Because when you prove to your citizens, to yourself, that okay, Ukrainians never existed, then of course you can say that, look, when we wage a war against Ukraine, we actually wage a war against some deviation of Russians and not against against Ukrainians themselves. So let's look deep inside. And um, the first occasion, of course, when we're talking about this genocidal element is Holodomor. So the Holodomor, the, the great famine, uh, famine, and actually there were several famines. There was, uh, there was famines in the 20s, early 20s, early 30s and after the Second World War. Uh, in the 20s and the 30s, historian est- historians estimate that one million people approximately have died. In the uh, famine of the 30s, about four million people. And this, is, this was, uh, as, far as, I'm, as far as I remember, one quarter of the Ukrainian population of that time, and primarily peasants. And why peasants? Just l- let us explain to also to our audience that peasants, uh, the big question of the these revolutions, the Bolshevik coup d'etat, Bolshevik revolution, but also the Ukrainian National Revolution in 1917 was the question of land. And the question of land was that peasants, after the cancellation of serfdom in 1861, were no longer slaves, no longer serfs, but they did not have land. So they received some land, at least in, in, in Ukraine. And uh, even after Ukrainian independence, after Ukrainian National Republic failed, it was defeated by the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks opened the so-called new economic policy, which was a kind of a quasi-capitalism. It, it existed at least uh, until the late 20s. Until the late 20s, imagine a peasant who got the land and uh, you enter in a kind of a capitalistic society and the economy is booming and uh, this peasant can earn money and he finally can be uh, more or less wealthy. And then Stalin came and comes with this idea of collectivization. So, so for peasants at the time, for Ukrainian peasants at the, at the time, and the Ukrainian nation was primarily the, the peasant nation, it was a coming back to the serfdom. So they, in many ways, they interpreted this in, in, in this way. So what Stalin did, not only he started to take the grain, which was supposed to be on, on export in order to get the money from the West to get uh, Soviet Union industrialized, but it was also punishment by, by famine. The, 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 the villages which were which 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 showed the lesser numbers of uh, supply of grain were encircled. This is what what was called the so-called uh, black desks. The so the, the 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 lists of villages which were you know against this collectivization, against this requisition of of grain. They were encircled. Uh, peasants were not allowed to. Uh, they, they they didn't have documents. They didn't have papers. Didn't have passports. So they they could not travel. 
between cities, between uh, regions, they couldn't go to the to the cities. Uh, and some travelers still describe how they move through the cities and see those begging, begging peasants who appear to to get to the cities. If I'm not mistaken, there was also an official ban for Ukrainian peasants to move between regions at that time in in uh, thirty two. Uh, it was described by Timothy Snyder in his course. So it's also about making people die from hunger uh, inside your village. So this is um, the question you are asking, if this is specifically genocidal war. So if this, it, all this was against Ukrainians as nation, I think that re- trying to respond to this question, we should take into consideration that a big part of the Ukrainian nation at that time, they were peasants. Some of them were fleeing to cities, but at the same time, a huge amount of uh, percentage of people were staying, still staying in villages. And um, that in the time, in this uh, early 30s, there were also the polit- policy of Stalin uh, concerning this national identity. So uh, Ukrainian uh, Renaissance writers, uh, artists, theatrical uh, um, workers were killed in late, in, were started to be killed in, in, in late 20s, but most of them were killed in 30s. So it was not only about... Um, about uh, human lives, about economy, but it was also about identity. So uh, it was also about culture, uh, and it was also about the type of economy. So what Stalin was was trying to do, industrialization. So, but these people who lost everything were not able to move to cities uh, because some people tried to move to cities just to uh, to save their lives, but uh, the most the biggest part of them were not able to do so, so that's why they died. And uh, if we regard the number of people who died, four million, some historians say, by the way, more than that, um, uh, from four up to seven million. So uh, taking in, into consideration that, we could really say that this Holodomor was a genocidal um, action against Ukrainian nation. Well, it's it's not only that. It's it's an important that we look at this uh, Holodomor as a genocide, not through the same lenses as, for example, the Nazis were killing Jews in the Holocaust. These are uh, different uh, different historical phenomena. They are, they are, they differ not not in the way that one is bigger evil than the other, but in the way that they were structurally structurally different. And the difference was that a Jew had no chance to become an Aryan. Let's say. He would not. He the 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 barrier for him was uh, was unsurmountable because it was biologically defined. It was biologically predetermined. Uh, for Ukrainians, you could become a different being, and therefore, for example, while the the the, the Nazis had the concept of Untermensch, under under man, right, under human being, not really a human being. The Stalin, Stalin had a notion the former people. Former people meant not so much peasants, but for example, primarily bourgeoisie aristocracy. But also, they can also be, you know, the skurkuli, the uh, the big, uh, well, the more, more or less wealthy peasants who could have also been called um, former people. That means that you did have a chance the soviet regime was telling you you did have a chance to uh, to get to the to the other other level and and therefore killing physical killing was of course very important as we see on holodomor but also the killing of intelligentsia who gives this this body this collective body we can say gives a soul and while we are talking about exterminating of hundreds of uh, uh, writers and artists in the 30s, they were most of them were arrested about 33, 34, and then they were sent, typically sent to camps and then killed in several days in Sandarmoch in Karelia, or in the northern, north, northern Russia, the territory which was annexed uh, some at one point in history by Russia from Finland. So, uh, they were killed in Sandarmoch in 1937, but it's indeed that the nation did not have a head, uh, we would say, right? Or did, did, not, <clears throat> did not have a heart, did not have a mouth, uh, words to speak. 
And this is, was also important because for, for the other people, the message was that you, you, you can become different. You can become Russians. One thing you should do is just to change the language, for example. Therefore, language was so much important because it was also about genocide. While Why Ukrainians are now uh, using this concept of linguicide? Because linguicide is in this part of the world where the imperial expansion is going through assimilation, as, as, as you said, erasing these tiny differences in, in order to create some artificial entity, which is which we might call Soviet people. Uh, uh, the language, turning the language from Ukrainian to Russian was also one of the elements of genocide. And as we know, both your parents and my parents, the grandparents, they all went through the same pattern. They were born in Ukrainian-speaking families, and then as long as they went to the universities, to big cities, they just forgot Ukrainian and started speaking Russian. I like your argument about elites, about about uh, cutting the head of this uh, Ukrainian nation, because at the same time, we do know that there were some Ukrainian elites at that time. There were communist elites, I, I don't, I don't know, new elites, no, people who were, who were designed, who were making these uh, communist or party, communist party careers in that time. Some of them were Ukrainians, right? So they were replacing elites by new people. Let's not forget that Soviet time they were thinking in this way of re- revolution. So they were trying to create this new world. So they were trying to create a completely different new system, and they were trying to create new elites. And they didn't never needed um, these old elites. I mean, national elites and. Uh, national identities so they were creating their own world and erasing everything else so that's not 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 surprised that they were trying to to assimilate but it was a hypocrisy because they were not they were not they were against ukrainian identity but they were not against russian identity so they were claiming ukrainians as nationalists but they were not claiming russians as nationalists so everybody was supposed to speak Russian for many decades here in this land, in Ukraine, but uh, it was not considered to be nationalist to speak Russian, right? So this is, was a, a different mechanism. And at the same time, um, what was very um, particular about these, these times, they were trying to, to suggest this a survival mechanism. So you want to leave, if you want to leave, so go to a city and go to work to the plant. If you are, for example, you were born in a village and you want to survive, so this is a society of survivors, you know. You want to survive, you can You can do that. If we take apart these uh, tragic uh, years of uh, 32, 33, of Holodomor, there were still some mechanisms to survive, but you have to follow the pattern of being communist of being Russian speaker, of erasing any family memory, for example. Let's also think about millions of families who were uh, forced to erase any kind of uh, trace of their family history. They were trying to forget who who they were, who their parents or their grandparents. So this is about this... uh, this um, radical cut with the past. So, Bivshilud, as you mentioned, yes, this is about the the future revolution. So, and everything which was in the past, you'd better forget that. You'd better erase that from your memory. You'd better stop being what you were, what you what you are, what you were. So, you'd better stop being Ukrainian. So, become these Soviet people, which would also mean being Russian people. What is also interesting is um, I think that, I mean, many many people understand that the concept of Soviet, pe- Soviet people, Soviet nation is an artificial concept, right? And we know that there was this idea created that out of all the nations, there will be another nation, new, new nation created, the Soviet people. But I think we can, we can say actually the same about Russian nation. If we look back in the 19th century, we can see that actually the ideology, when, when the idea of nation was born, because when we are talking about 18th century, no idea of nation existed in Russia. And uh, the Russian Empire was, well, it was, it was not uh, obviously, uh, it has nothing to do with the national idea. It was n- not the Russian state. Uh, 
and and we will come back to this uh, i think later but when the idea of the nation emerged and it it emerged let's not forget first and foremost in 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 thinkers who were not really thinking in 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 the atatist or imperial terms the idea of the nation was born in Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, who was a a Swiss philosopher not French philosopher it's very important he was a Geneva citoyen de Genève a Geneva philosopher who was rather thinking in terms of republics small city republics and therefore he kind of creates this idea of uh, la volonté générale general will and the idea of the nation as he says that in order to sign a social contract with a sovereign you have to be already a a and a, a body, a collective body. And, and what is this collective body? It's precisely the nation. So the nation exists before the state. That was his his idea. And then, of course, the non, uh, non-etatist uh, nations at the time, for, uh, primarily Germans, people like Herder, who were creating this idea that, look, there is a deep nation. There is a nation which transforms, transcends, um, uh, trans- translate its senses not through the written texts, but through fairy tales, through uh, through songs, through something that is not written that is collected with the with the oral culture, with the with the bodies, with the generational traditions, etc. So these ideas, for example, Herderian ideas, come to Ukraine through sometimes directly through Kharkiv. And this is a very interesting topic, how Kharkiv University in the early 19th century was actually uh, getting these German ideas. Uh, other German ideas who were born during the Napoleonic Wars as a kind of a, the birth of this German patriotism and the national identity. Another example is, of course, Scottish. Scottish culture and how the Scottish writers as Walter Scott was so much popular in, among Ukrainian romantics. Uh, they were coming also through the Polish, of course, Polish Romanticism or Slovak and Czech Romanticism, a very interesting process, but not the Russian ones, right? So the idea of the nation was coming through Poles, Germans, Slovaks and Czechs, but not the Russians. And Russian Romanticism, people like Pushkin or Lermontov have nothing to do, their literature has nothing to do with the idea of the national identity. So when the Russian Empire started to react to this idea of national identity, and it was rather in the 80s, 80s, 30s, 80s, 40s. And then there was this ideology, Samodzijavia, Pravoslavia, Samodzijavia, Narodnost, Orthodoxy, Autocracy, and Nationality. At that time, there was this idea that there should be kind of a common nation, a triunite nation, Ruski Narod, which consists from the Great Russians, Belarusians, and Little Russians, Ukrainians. So, in a way, this idea of Ruski Narod was also an artificial idea. It yes. was an artificial idea of how you, you 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 combine these three nations and then assimilate these three nations in in one of them. Yes, indeed. And uh, on the, um, from a different point of view, this artificial nature of this Ruski Narod was quite clear in the 19th century. Remember, they called uh, they called Narod. I mean. People or nation, mostly people, people who were illiterate, so as uh, an eternal opposition to to the elites. So, Ruski Narod, Russian people, they were people without any rights, without any education, illiterate people living in villages, uh, without any human rights, any kind of rights, etc. And elites, they were people uh, coming through these European traditions. They were speaking French. They were living in in beautiful houses. They were exchanging, uh, uh, f- they having family ties with a lot of families in Europe. So this was an artificial link of two bodies in the society. Looks on one side these Ruski narod, Russian people living on in in Russia, and on other side these elites which had no links and. All these uh, uh, writers of the 19th century and 18th century were playing and exploring this opposition between educated elite and illiterate people. And in a way, it, it, it is an, an obstacle to what we call the unity of the nation, because this is no organic, organic uh, I don't know, link, organic unity between the both, right? So, and this thing, we've never seen it here in Ukraine. And I think this is, for sure, this is an imperialistic nature of this Russian empire on one hand, 
Well, this is why precisely for, for, for Russians, at least in 19th century, narod was a synonym of uh, uh, an antonym of enlightenment. Uh, it was not rational, it was not literate, it was has no tradition, no understanding, etc., etc. And you know why? Why this, uh, this kind of... Uh Interest to narod was born in 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 people like Dostoevsky or people like like uh, Slavophiles, because for them the the elites Russian the elites of Russian Empire was not Russian at all, and in a sense they were right because if we look at the idea of the state of late 18th century it was far from being a national idea. The state was a, an amalgam of the aristocratic families, which were ruling some masses of people. And who were the aristocratic families of the Russian Empire at the time? There were German aristocrats, of course. Uh, all, we, we all know about Catherine II, etc. But this ger- German element is very, very important. And if you, even if you look at Kiev, at... Uh, in the 19th century, you will see lots of German families, for example, in the universities, in the University of Kiev University. Then uh, there were other colonized nations with aristocratic families. For example, I always was posing a question why one of the leaders of the Russian army against Napoleon was called Bagration. And it was a Georgian family, the prince aristocratic family of Bagrationi, who were uh, colonized by the Russians at that time. <clears throat> I think it was in, in late 18th centuries, if, if I'm not mistaken, and just joined this um, this uh, this Russian aristocracy. They were they were giving the same rights as as Russian aristocracy, the Russian imperial aristocracy. The same question was actually towards the Ukrainian aristocracy. Therefore. There is a big question of Ukrainians, why Ukrainian elites, many of them, you know, like uh, we know all those families who still existed in in late 18th century, uh, like Bezborodko or some others, why they took the high posts in the Russian hierarchy. Because they were giving the the, the, the rights of the, uh, of the aristocracy, but they were everything... They could be German, they could be Georgians, they could be French, they could be, they could be Ukrainians, they could be Poles. After the, the third partition of Poland, uh, the big aristocracy, Polish aristocracy of the right bank Ukraine also was given aristocracy rights initially in the Russian Empire. And of course, people like Slavophiles, those Russian Slavophiles in mid-19th century, looking at that, looking at this very strange amalgam of the Russian elites who were speaking French, having German, Georgian, Ukrainian, Polish, or some other origins, they were not recognizing in them in, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, as Russians. But of course, I mean, we are just going that to the idea that it was precisely the time, mid-19th century, when the idea of Ruski Narod was born. So when, when we see right now all these Putinist ideas that look, Ruski Narod, uh, Russian people existed everywhere on these lands and that Peter I was actually reconquering a lands which were, uh, you know, belonged to Russians and... Uh, Russians are now reconquering the lands of the so-called Novorossiya, the southern and eastern Ukraine, because Ruski Narod was always living there. Actually, the concept of Ruski Narod in the in the Russian people in the current form was rather born in the mid-19th century. It was born later than the idea of certain Ukrainian national identity or Polish national identity. And that this is something... So there is a certain parallel between the artificial character of the idea of the Soviet people and artificial character of the idea of uh, Russian people. And why it is all important? Because this artificial idea enters into the minds of the Russian people, Russian propagandists, became kind of idea of something natural, something that existed for eternity on these lands, and therefore considers all the other ideas, which were also constructed at a certain time, as artificial per se and having no right to exist. This is how this change of ideas is actually leading to, uh, to the very cruel things, you know.
Yes, exactly. And what we observe right now in Ukraine, then when, when we see Russian army, most probably you will not see a, a Russian, you'll see a Buryat, you'll see a Chechen, you'll see any kind of other people, other than the other people coming from different regions of Russia, and all of them are claim to be Russians, so, but they, a lot of artificial and unjust things inside Russia itself even now. So, Ruski Narod, so on one hand, they claim to be all the population of Russia, they are one, 140 million people living in Russia actually to be Russians, but at the same time, only a small part of this Ruski Narod, of this Russian population is, is specifically Russian. And there are a lot of uh, a lot of uh, problems between these different regions. And not, a not, of, not a small uh, part. It's it's a majority. Uh, some people say eighty percent. Therefore, some people are actually arguing that Russia is not an empire but a, a nation state. But for me, the question is whether all those people who identify themselves as ethnically Russians are indeed ethnically Russians, because we all lived in the Soviet Union a little bit, and we all remember one thing that. Well, the changing of nationality was a very typical thing. Being Russian was, of course, considered as the top. And therefore, many Ukrainians were, at a certain moment, <clears throat> when they were changing passports, writing themselves as Russians. And even more so with the Jews. So Jews were changing their last names and they were changing the how they write themselves in the passport as... Because precisely being Russian in Soviet times and being Russian today, it means not the ethnicity, not the place where you were born. It means your place in the, in the society, your place in this vertical hierarchy of the society. So if you're on the south, if you'd like to go somewhere to the top, you you claim yourself to be Russian. It was quite clear in Soviet times, we do remember um, families, for example, even in my family, I'll provide an example. Um, my grandfather was Ukrainian. My grandmother, she moved here to Ukraine from Voronezh. She was Russian. They had two kids, my mother and my uncle. My mother, when she had a choice, at, she was 16 or 18 years old. In Soviet times, people were writing their nationality in their passports. So they were free to choose. My mother wrote that she was Ukrainian because they were living in Ukraine. They were speaking this kind of Ukrainian surjik in their small town. But her brother, my uncle, wrote himself to be Russian. Why he did so? Because he wanted to enter the army because he wanted to build this military career. And for him, so the same family, sister and brother, one was Ukrainian and another was Russian. And the same thing was happening everywhere. If you wanted to enter university, for example, if you wanted to, 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 to occupy some, some good position in a, in, in a good place, so you were, if you had a choice, you, you were choosing uh, Russian. But I'm not speak, I was not speaking about... Uh, about self-identification, I was speaking about uh, about ethnicity. So, if you look at Russia itself, you'll see a lot of people which are even ethnically, physically, are quite different from what we consider to be Slavonic nation. So, a quite big number of those people, and there's a lot of hypocrisy in inside the Russian society. At least, we're not we don't know a lot about Russian society right now. But I remember, for example, from my visit to Moscow in 2013, right before my Euromaidan started, I do remember my surprise when I was in Moscow and I've seen that all uh, positions like uh, people who were cleaning streets, people who were who were doing some services, they were not they had they were physically different from Russians. So they came from from many many re Russian regions and and not only Russian, maybe Central Asia, Central Caucasus, Asia. so. Yeah, people of Turkic. Uh, no, Turkey maybe not so much. So, no, so, I mean Turkic, Turkic peoples, Turkic peoples, uh, Mongol, uh, Mongoloid peoples, and uh, maybe Caucasians, maybe uh, uh, um, Ugrofins, different different origins, right? I also heard this argument, recent argument, in a video posted on social media, social network in Russia. They were discussing mobilization, and one guy was saying, "Look, we are." We Russians, we inhabitants of Moscow, we are I don't know how to translate that. It means that we are with the chiefs here and you should fight for us because we provided you with all the rights here in our Russia. So you are to go to the front now and die for our 
during this war, this war. This was an that, that's actually, actually very typical. Unfortunately, Russians, well, as as a as a as an, a typical imperial nation, usually imperial nations use the colonized nation to fight uh, for its cause. And basically, Ukrainians suffered uh, from that all the time. And if you look at the late 18th century, how Ukrainian Cossacks were actually fighting in the Russian army against the Ottoman Empire and against uh, Kremlin, the Crimean Tatars. And uh, and and did a lot a lot of bad things to to Kirimli. and and then when uh, when uh, Crimean Khanate uh, was annexed, there was no need for the Ukrainian Cossacks anymore, and therefore Catherine II destroyed uh, annihilated the the Ukrainian Cossacks siege. So um, indeed, and let's maybe the final point: how history is important. Maybe we will talk one one day one another day about this. Look, if you look at this Russian narrative, so we are saying right now that, look, our argument right now is this, that uh, Russians are saying that Ukrainians are artificial, that Ukrainians never existed, that it was all the Russian space, etc. They, uh, it's, it's, it's not really the way how historians think today. Historians think today in the way how identities emerge, are being born, how it's uh, how they always a product of some different influences, how are they are being constructed, etc. And uh, from this perspective, the, the, the idea of Ruski Narod was rather born in, in somewhere in the mid 19th century, maybe a, a few decades after the idea of the even of the Ukrainian nationhood or or Polish nationhood. The nation as uh, a synthesis between different strats of people, between aristocracy and uh, proletarians and peasants, for example. This was an idea unthinkable for, let's say, eight, uh, 17th century, right? And while Russians are saying that uh, they have always been been here, they interpreted history in that way. Uh, we have been to Kherson with you, right, in, um, in late December. It's very, to our listeners, we can say that if you're interested in our uh, visit to Kherson, you can listen to one of the, our podcast episodes. It's a very dangerous place right now, so the artillery shelling all the time. Uh, but we have seen, for example, the, the, the monument to Prince Patyomkin. Again, the, uh, the, uh, the important figure in the Russian Empire of the late 18th century, the Empire of the Catherine II. And uh, the monument, they, they took with them the monument and the, the bones of Prince Potemkin, but uh, on the pedestal of this monument, it's it's written that uh, Potemkin, Asnavatil, uh, Gora de Kherson, the founder of the Kherson city. The same we, we can say about Odessa, and this is uh, a big, big trouble right now around that the monument to Catherine II was removed uh, from the uh, central Odessa because for, you know, in this Russian imperial myth, Catherine was somebody who uh, created Odessa. Uh, but it was, I mean, th these elements, these statements are actually saying that only when Russian Empire came, there they, they have appeared something on these territories, right? Before that, there was a wild, wild lands, nothing was here, etc., etc. But we know that before Catherine founded uh, quote unquote Odessa. Uh, there was a city called Hajibay, which was a Turkic uh, city of Ottoman city, and uh, uh, I think it was also Kerimli city, if I'm not mistaken. But but at least it was kind of this city, an important port of the Turkic world. Uh, in Kherson, in around Kherson, there were Cossacks uh, well before Catherine II uh, or Potemkin created the city and. The important place where we have been uh, with you one year ago, Oleshki, was a place for, um, for also for Cossack siege. Even after, uh, I think even after the um, Catherine destroyed the Zaporizhian siege, uh, many of these places of Cossack, they moved to the Ottoman Empire and they set up the settlements there. And one of the settlements was, was Oleshki. So the, in, in any case, this is the same mechanism uh, every time what happened then and what is happening now, they're trying to erase history 
uh, erase local history from the places they occupy and then to present these places and these identities as being Russians from the very beginning and forever. They were writing in Kherson, Russia is here forever. So as if it was a, a big return of Russia on in these lands. And this is about erasing the past. This is about amnesty. This is about that uh, the on, only one identity is possible for this land. They are uh, not tolerant until... Uh, towards kind of previous identities, no, not inclusive, not inclusive at all. They is a complete tabula rasa of the previous history. And what they will do, what they are already doing, for example, in cities like Mariupol, look what Mariupol looks like today. So in Mariupol, it is devastated, ruined city by Russian artillery and Russian army back in, in February, March and April 2022. What they're doing now, they're demolishing the ruins now and a lot of uh, important buildings are already demolished, and they are building a brand new uh, multi-story buildings in the city. They've already built a couple, maybe a couple of dozens of these buildings inside Mariupol, and I have no doubt that if Ukraine army uh, doesn't succeed to liberate the, the city, we do hope it will, but they will uh, rebuild a different city in the, on these ruins, and they will present this war as a war of liberation and as a war of for, for this Russian identity and that Mariupol has been always Russian and they will create new myths about Mariupol, which is a place, by the way, of the crossroad of different identities and cultures, Greek, for example, diaspora, Ukrainians, uh, many others, uh, Kremlin, some Kremlin as well, many, many different people, many different languages. They will present that as a Russian. So this is always about literally destroying everything on your way and creating this new uh, identity and claiming that it was always been here. What is happening with Ukraine? So they are trying to 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 cancel Ukraine as it is and then to say it will be always be, been Russia, right? By the way, what, do, do you know why why uh, they were giving these Greek names um, to to the cities of uh, these steps, um, Azov steps and Black Sea steps. Uh, not, I'm not sure that they were giving that because they loved Greek so much, although they they did uh, transport some of the Greeks which were living in Crimea after they annexed Crimea for the first time in the late 18th century. But I think the idea was to, to give these names Mariupol, then Melitopol, then Kherson, which is a replica to Khersonas on in Crimea. Uh, just to show to the Western Europe that look, we are we know what the deep Greek culture is. We know the origins of the Greek culture because it was the age of Enlightenment, and everybody of these enlightened philosophers, Voltaire, Diderot, Rousseau, was so much, you know, into this Greek story and the ancient Greek story. And Catherine was, I mean, in, this also a typical in in the Russian history to make a facade. But look, I'm I'm enlightened monarch. As she was telling, I'm, I, I am the place where you have you have your liberty and f free ideas to develop. I am this place when where, where you will develop. Of course, it was a facade, and behind this facade there was immense cruelty. But in order to give this facade, she was she was actually saying, "Look, I, I, I'm 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 making these Greek settlements because they're no longer Turkish. They're no longer." Kremlin, they're no longer Muslim, etc. While in the Ukrainian history is interesting in the way how actually we understand more and more right now how, for example, our relations, Ukrainians and Kremlin cultures were so much intertwined. How, uh, how many words that we have that are now symbolic words for Ukrainian culture, take Maidan, which, is, which comes from the Turkic languages, take Kozak, Take Ottoman, the, the the leader of the Cossacks, even the the hairdress of the Cossacks, the so-called Osaledets, also most probably comes from the Turkic world, Turkic-speaking world. So it's 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 very interesting how these actually cultures were filled, were not void, were not empty, as the Russian Empire tries to present it. One more image, one more matter for coming once again from Mariupol. If you see what they're doing actually with uh, the thematic theater they bombarded back in March, 
everybody remember these horrific uh, images, uh, horrible, horrible images of bombing of Mariupol city. Uh, several, um, a lot of people died there, and now it is uh, is being demolished. And at the same time, the uh, Russians made a kind of a temporary facade for the theater, and on this facade, you can see uh, faces of Russian classics, like the this air. Uh, just a fake and a fake walls. It's not real walls, but this is like it, here you will find a new place of Russian culture in some time. So they are building literally on the ruins of that they cruelly ruined uh, the theater, this uh, this uh, city. Uh, they killed all these people, but here they will create a new theater with this old Russian classic. So I I think it's a good metaphor of what yeah. of how Russia progresses and how and why we should talk about about this cruelty and about this uh, genocide uh, like a erasing of any kind of differences uh erasing the whole identity ukrainian identity killing ukrainian people uh, uh banning ukrainian language so that's not a not a surprise they start from banning um, uh, banning ukrainian uh, language in occupied territories so all that is not only um for territories but this is also their fight to to cancel to i don't know to to kill everything to kill ukraine to destroy ukraine as as it is yeah i think this is a profound metaphor uh, that the place where I, th- I think hundreds of people were killed right in mariupol drama drama theater there was a a bombing of this place and this should be a a place of the morning this should be a really this is a collective grave and it should be presented like that well especially when i mean russians presented as ukrainians did that which is which shows that this is not the case because if they really believe that ukrainians did that that azov did that then they would create a kind of a commemoration place out of this out of the drama theater but uh, they really Establish the Russian culture on the bones of people who died there, on the cemetery, on the collective grave, the place, the place of death. So maybe this is the metaphor: the dead souls, the new dead souls, which are coming, which are coming from this country. Okay, so let's maybe come to come to an end. So I hope we we try to present you these some deep origins of this genocidal war and how actually the very idea of Russia um, we did not talk about this by the way in, in detail maybe we'll talk about this more in detail in one uh, another episode how the very idea of Russia is so dependent on on Ukraine uh, as if they are feeling that uh, there can be no Russia without Ukraine this is kind of a deep schizophrenic identity troubles of the Russians themselves which provokes so much um, hatred and aggression against the Ukrainian nation. The goal of this war is indeed to destroy, to annihilate Ukrainian nation and Ukrainian history. And what is that if not a genocidal war? This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on every platform you found, find this podcast. And don't forget to support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We appreciate your support. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.